You were singing like Methodists tonight. I think I was too. That was wonderful. Thank you. That last hymn, I just can't get enough of. That's so good. I love this room. This is just, it feels intimate. It, I love the other room too. That, I'm not comparing, but this is, this is special. Good. And I love the children being here. The moms are courageous. Thank you. I know this is a school night. Let me read you a story. I found this in Max Lucado somewhere years ago. It's about Chippy the parakeet. Chippy the parakeet never saw it coming. One second he was peacefully perched in his cage, and the next he was sucked in, washed up, blown over. The problems began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with the vacuum cleaner. She removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it in the cage, and then her phone rang. She turned to pick up the phone, and she'd barely said hello when <laughs> Chippy got sucked in. The bird owner gasped, put down the phone, turned off the vacuum, and opened the bag. <laughs> there was Chippy, still alive, but stunned. <laughs> since, the bird owner, since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she grabbed him and raced to the bathroom, turned on the faucet, and held Chippy under the running water. Then realizing that Chippy was soaked and shivering, she did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for the hair dryer and blasted the pet with hot air. Poor Chippy. Never knew what hit him. A few days after the trauma, a reporter who had heard about the incident called the bird owner and asked how the bird was doing. The owner replied, well, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. <laughs> she just sits in her cage and stares. Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. I love that story. Life is hard. I learned as a pastor, Sunday morning comes, beautiful families walk in the door of the church, squeaky clean, carrying their Bible. Morning, pastor. How you doing? Oh, praise the Lord. Everything's great. But about three out of four people in the congregation, this is unscientific survey, but about three out of four, if you grab them by the shoulder, look them in the eye, say, well, just wait a minute. How are you really doing? The tears are just below the surface. There's something going on that's really hard. I tell a silly story about Chippy to introduce something that's not funny at all. Jesus gave us a promise. I've never found it in one of those precious promise boxes that you can buy at the Christian bookstore. You know, you pull out those precious promises. Here's a promise he gave you, and it's a promise. In this world, you will have tribulation. I promise you. I'm no prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet. In fact, I work for a nonprofit organization. 
And yet, I want to make a prophecy. Everyone in this room is either right now going through something really hard, you have been through something really hard, or you're about to go through something really hard. I got a phone call yesterday that was really hard about a family situation I won't talk about, but it's like, oh my goodness. In this world, you will have tribulation. Now, suffering, hardship, adversity, sickness, death is hard for every citizen of planet Earth. I mean, it's a common problem we all have. But for Christians, it's especially hard. And for two reasons. On the one hand, we believe God is good. God is good, good, good. He's all the time God is good, right? On the other hand, we believe God is sovereign. He can, God can do anything, anything, anything. I grew up singing that chorus. God can do anything. So, if problems, adversity, and suffering come... I find myself on the horns of a dilemma. God, if you're good, and if you can fix things, why? Either you could do it if you would, which means you're powerful but not good, or you would do it if you could, which means you're good but not powerful. I don't know if you've ever been on the horns of that dilemma, but I've spent a lot of my life just saying, Lord, you're good, you're powerful, but the, all hell is broken loose. Somebody said it this way, if Auschwitz exists, the Nazi concentration camp where a million Jews were killed, if Auschwitz exists, God doesn't. That's just sort of, there's a rationality to that. So what do we do with suffering? If you hear anything I say tonight, I want you to hear this. Suffering is not a problem to solve. Suffering is a mystery to embrace. I'm going to say it again. Because I've spent a lot of my life trying to solve the problem of suffering. And I've finally given up. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> suffering is not a problem to solve. It is a mystery to embrace. Now, ever since seminary, I've been interested in the problem of pain, the problem of suffering. Why is there hardship in the world? And for much of my life, it was a theoretical, pastoral issue. But in the last few years of my life, let me just tell you a few things that have come my way. A heart attack. And between Katie and I, between Katie, let me just limit it there, my wife. A heart attack, cancer, stroke, wheelchair, the death of three of our four parents. And I find myself at times just screaming, Lord, what's this all about? Where does suffering fit into the plan of God? 
And whenever I ask that, you'll never guess what the Lord says to me. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> I've been waiting for you to ask that question. We live in a culture that, that promotes the prosperity gospel. That basically teaches, if you put your trust in Jesus, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and happy. You can build a church around that. You can sell best-selling books with that kind of message. But it ain't true. I, I said that too harshly because it's partly true. <laughs> it's partly true. If there's not a cross in our journey, we're not on the right journey. Jesus said, in this world, if you follow the man of the cross, you will ex experience cruciformity. That's my new word. Cruciformity. A cross-shaped reality. That's how redemption comes. I, we got to turn to scripture. Exodus 15. I've got a few sermons that are just my sermons. And this is one of, it's just my sermons. It's sort of my story. This is, this changed life for me. Exodus 14 and 15 is the story of the greatest miracle in the Old Testament, the crossing of the Red Sea. This is when God took his captive people and through the blood of the Passover lamb, the blood, it takes blood, and through the waters of the Red Sea, he redeemed them. You can't be redeemed without blood and water. It doesn't get more gospel than that. You need blood and water to get the chains taken off and be set free. Chapter 14, that happens. Chapter 15, well, let me just show you. Uh, when chapter 14 ends, uh, you turn to chapter 15, and it's in poetry. My Bible calls it the Song of Moses. I think it was the moment where it says at the end of 14, when the dead Egyptian soldiers who had died in their pursuit of God's people, when those bodies washed up in the surf on the shore, <laughs> Miriam said, I feel a song coming on. <laughs> That is, I just love scripture. She grabbed her tambourine and she started singing. I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider thrown into the sea. You sing that around here? No. That's a, you can sing that in rounds. That's a fun one. But it's, that's what she's singing in chapter 15. The horse and rider of Pharaoh. The demon army has been destroyed. We've been singing about it tonight. The victory that God has won. She took her tambourine and the greatest, I think, worship service of the Old Testament led two million people in singing the horse and rider song. I will sing unto the Lord. He's triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider thrown into the sea. We're redeemed. Wow. Where are we? We must be in Canaan. We must be in the promised land, right? We're out of Egypt. They start looking around and they realize we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> Where are we? Where's the milk and honey? I don't know how much they knew of their geography. 
This is an interesting question. I love, the, I love to preach the map. This is the map. You're redeemed, but where are you? Well, geographically, they're in the Sinai Peninsula, one of the most desolate, barren, desert pieces of real estate on planet Earth. It looks more like Death Valley than the Promised Land. It's like, where's the milk and honey? And there's the pillar of fire leading them. Are you with me? Now let's pick up the story. I just I can't tell you how much I love this passage. We're in chapter 15. You see in verse 19 and 20, that's where Miriam takes her tambourine and they sing the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Verse 22. Here we go. We're on the journey of salvation. The pillar of fire is leading. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Two million thirsty people in the Sinai Peninsula, three days after the greatest miracle in human history, there's the pillar of fire just smiling at them. You're right where you're supposed to be. They could find nothing to drink. Verse 23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, they named it the bitter place. Mara. And the people said, not to worry. We've seen God do 10 plagues. We've seen God part the sea. God can handle this. Is that what the people said? What'd they do? They grumbled against their senior pastor. It's your fault. <laughs> they grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? <laughs> You've got to get the right intonation. They weren't just asking an informational question. What are we supposed to do, Mr. Redeemer? You brought us here. What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him what? Check your Bibles out. It's interesting. This translation says a log, but the footnote says a tree. I want you to remember that word tree. At the bitter place, the Lord showed Moses a tree. Let me just fast forward a minute. Three times in the New Testament, the inspired writers of the gospel called the cross a tree. Interesting word to describe the cross. They nailed him to a tree. The Lord showed him a tree, and he threw the tree in the bitter water, and the bitter place became the sweet place. There the Lord made for them a statute and a covenant, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. I am the Lord your healer. Then 
he led them to Palm Springs. <laughs> now it says Elam. That's the right word. But it was a place of 70 palm trees and 12 springs of water, and they camped there from the bitter place to Palm Springs. Lord, would you be our teacher tonight? Some of us are at bitter places. And would you show us the tree? In Jesus' name, amen. I'd love to be a movie producer and try to produce this scene. I picture it like this. They cross the Red Sea. Miriam leads the horse and rider song with her tambourine. And then the pillar of fire begins to move out across the desert. And the shout goes up, the Lord is leading. We're headed to the promised land. They start singing the horse and rider song as they march. They're skipping. They're singing. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful. They're just full of the songs of Zion. Day one. Day two, Miriam puts her tambourine away. And rather than singing, they're humming. <laughs> rather than skipping, they're walking. Day three, they put, they've stopped humming, they're trudging, and somebody from the back seat of the family camel says, are we there yet? <laughs> Where are we? We're in a desert. Two million people. God, where is he taking us? Is, this is insanity. Suddenly the guide up front says, not to worry, there's an oasis. God hasn't failed us. An oasis, that's good news. Two million people, goats, camels, dogs, cats, start running toward the water. They don't even stop at the water break. They just run right in the water. And then suddenly they're gagging, they're vomiting, they're retching. This is bitter. You can't drink this water. And they look up and there's the pillar of fire just smiling at them, saying you're right where you're supposed to be. You didn't make a wrong turn. You're not being punished. You're at the bitter place. Welcome to Discipleship 101. This is the most amazing story I've ever read in my life. Stop one on the journey of salvation. Stop number one in discipleship with Jesus Christ. First place, first lesson is the bitter place. That's changed my theology inside out. What's going on when the Lord leads us to the bitter place? Suffering is not a problem to solve. It's a mystery to embrace. Let me just look at a few words. When they came to the bitter place, what did God's people do? They did what I do, grumbled, particularly against your leaders. It's their fault. Moses, you led us here. Moses said, I didn't lead you here. God led you here. Or it's Pharaoh's fault that we're here. They grumbled. Now, if you've ever studied the seven deadly sins, that's sort of a Roman Catholic tradition, but it's an interesting study. I've never seen grumbling mentioned as one of the seven deadly sins. But I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, grumbling 
will keep you doing laps in the wilderness all your life. It's a killer. It may not be on your list of serious sins. You see, grumbling is based on the assumption that my happiness is determined by my circumstances. That's so good, I'm going to say it again. We get the notion that if my circumstances are right, then I'll be happy. And if I'm not happy, it's because my circumstances are wrong. And whenever you have that assumption in your life, God says, we need to spend some time at the bitter place. Where you can learn that your joy in the Lord has nothing to do with your outward circumstances. Oh, my goodness, that takes my breath away. You've got to realize when I preach this sermon, I've got a wife in a wheelchair. It's redefined everything in our household. You just, that's the context. This is not just theory. I'm trying to work this mystery out. You see, grumbling says, if I, I'll never find happiness here, happiness is found there. Somebody called it destination disease. (laughs) I can tell you when I first experienced destination disease, first grade. I looked down the hall one day and I saw fourth graders. This is true. I can almost remember this happening. First grade, I looked down the hall and saw fourth graders. They were huge. And they were cool. And I drew the conclusion, life does not happen in the first grade. Life happens in the fourth grade. Not here. It happens there. Well, you know what? I got to the fourth grade one day, and I realized... It's not here. You know where life is? Life's in middle school. Oh, my goodness. Middle school is things start happening there that are super cool. When I get to middle school, then I'll find contentment. Well, I got to middle school. You'll never guess what happened. Wrong again. High school, you start to drive, start to date, play sports. Got to high school? No, it's not here. It's in college. When you get to college, move away from home, move in the dorm, that's where life happens. Well, I got to college. You'll never guess what happened. No, it's not here. It's when you get married. So I got married. Isn't this where life happens? Well, not quite. (laughs) Why are you laughing at that? That's safe for me to say because my wife's not here with me. I drew the conclusion, no, life doesn't happen with marriage. It happens when you fill your house with blessed children. Well, we filled our house with blessed children, and you know what we began to think? No, life happens when those children go away. (laughs) I think I was in my 30s. And somebody, an insurance representative talked to me and basically said this, you know, life happens in retirement. And if you get your portfolio right, you can move to Florida and collect seashells and play golf for 25 years. 
that's what you're aiming for. And I realized, this is insane. <laughs> I can spend my entire life living for there, living for somewhere, not here. It won't happen here. That's what Mara is all about. When we grumble about our circumstances and why God would allow them. And God says, because I want you to realize this at Mara. I sometimes look at the handicapped sticker that this is too personal, that hangs in my car. It's been there for six years now, so you'd think I'd get used to it. And I say, Lord, so that's who we are, handicapped. You know what the word invalid means? <laughs> Invalid. Think of that. Invalid. Is that who we are, Lord? The only blessing I can find in that handicap sticker is I get to cl park close to the door at Cracker Barrel. <laughs> that is a blessing, by the way. <laughs> Lord says, I'm trying to teach you to live in the circumstances. This is, and here's the other word, this is a test. This is a test. What does that mean, Lord? Lord says, well, when you get over into Canaan and you're ready to possess your inheritance, you're going to discover that there are giants camping on your inheritance. And when you hear the word giants, think soldiers from ISIS. Or if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, think orcs. <laughs> There's bad dudes that are camping on your inheritance. And I just say, you didn't tell me that when I was still in Egypt and asked me to leave. And the Lord said, no, you would still be in Egypt if I'd have told you that. But I'm preparing you for battle. Because when you get in Canaan, you haven't even begun to fight until you get there. And there are bad dudes there who will cut your head off. But if you've been to the bitter place, this is a test. And if you pass the Mara test, those orcs, piece of cake. When you get to Jericho, you don't even need your sword. Just take your trumpet, walk around the city seven times, and watch what happens. I love the Bible. There's no story anywhere better. This is a test. And the Lord showed Moses a tree. I'm convinced the vocabulary is intentional here. And I'm convinced when Peter and the apostles in the New Testament called the cross a tree, it wasn't just a casual thought. I think they were thinking of the bitter place. Well, what does the cross do to the bitter place? Well, it doesn't remove it. It's still the bitter place. But when you look at the cross, was any man's sorrows and suffering and bitterness like his? You just apply that cross to your wheelchair, Stan. Sir, yes, sir. It's like, forgive my arrogance. It doesn't explain the bitter place, 
but it gives me the grace to embrace the mystery of redemptive suffering. And the adjective redemptive is key. This is not random suffering. This is not worthless suffering. This is suffering that is redemptive in its power. This is so good. I hope you're having as much fun as I am. Fun's not the right word, but this is, this is good. Let me tell you what I want to do with you. When I got to studying Exodus 15 and trying to preach on it, this is just how my warped mind works, I decided to write a creed. Now, it's not going to replace the Apostles' Creed or the Chalcedonian Creed or any of the creeds, but I want to teach you the Creed of Mara. It's changed my life. It's real simple, but I want you to learn it with me. I'm going to make a few comments as we go. But the creed begins this way. <clears throat> I believe the Lord led me here. Would you say that with me out loud? I believe the Lord led me here. Moses didn't lead me here. This is not the senior pastor's fault. Pharaoh, it's not his fault. The Lord, there's the pillar of fire. I didn't take a wrong turn. I'm not being punished for something wrong that I did. But somehow in the mystery of God, Lord, I may not blame you for the pain in my life, but I am holding you fully responsible. If you are sovereign, I believe you allowed this in my life. It's a hard thing to say. I believe the Lord led me here. This is not a mistake. It's not an accident. I love to read children's books to my grandchildren. I really like to read them. G.K. Chesterton said, we learn our best theology from children's books. And let me give you one of my favorite theological children's books. <laughs> you never laugh at the places I laugh at because you don't know what's funny yet. But it's the book Going on a Bear Hunt. Now, I don't know if you know this, but let me just teach it to you. Going on a bear hunt, and you're supposed to repeat, going on a bear hunt, going to catch a big one. I'm not afraid. afraid. Uh-oh, a swamp. Wait a minute. Oh, that's good. Can't go over it. Can't go under it. Can't go around it. Got to go through it. Swoosh, swoosh, swoosh. This is great with your grandchildren. Turn the page. Going on a bear hunt. Going to catch a big one. I'm not afraid. afraid. Uh-oh, a, Uh oh, a snowstorm. And then can't go over it. Go you get the idea. <laughs> now listen to me. Gonna walk with Jesus. I'm not afraid. Uh oh, a bitter place. Can't go over it. 
Can't go under it. You're not about to remove it. <laughs> Got to go through it. I don't know how that applies to you, but that's about as good a theology as you can get. It's the theology of the cross, not just his cross, your cross. I believe God led me here. Second part of the creed. I believe God will provide for me here. Say that with me. I believe God will provide for me not there, not destination disease, not when I get there. I believe God will provide for me here at Mara. Takes my breath away. He showed Moses a tree. You know, what I want him to do is take the bitter place away. What an incredible provision for bitterness, to show him a tree. <laughs> Just look at the cross, Stan. Shut your mouth. Stop trying to figure it out. Stop kicking and screaming and just go to Calvary and look. That helps. Doesn't take the pain away. Doesn't take the bitterness away, but I believe God will provide for me here. You see, redemption is about so much more than getting us out of Egypt. Redemption is about getting Egypt out of us. Worldliness, Egyptian thinking, worldly ways, and the first place that happens is when we get out of Egypt and the Lord himself leads us to a situation of bitterness. I don't know about you, but before I started following Jesus, when I look back, life was going pretty good. <laughs> I started following Jesus and all hell broke loose. I kid you not. And it's still breaking loose. Welcome to the war. Somebody said you know, about the expression, life is a beach. You remember that? Life is a beach. I heard, I think, a preacher somewhere, they said, yeah, life's a beach. Omaha Beach. <laughs> I like that. It's a, there's a war going on. And Jesus is in the process of redeeming the world. And he's trying to raise up an army of people who will be his soldiers, and to be his soldiers, I promise you, he'll lead you to the bitter place where you'll discover what he can do at the bitter place. I believe God led me here. Say that with me. I believe God will provide for me here. Thirdly, I believe God will one day, lead me away from here. I believe God will one day lead me Mara is not your home. Praise the Lord. 
Do not identify yourself with Morrow. That is not your identity. Your home is in Canaan. My home is in Canaan. But he will lead you to Morrow. He will lead you to the bitter place. And one day, the pillar of fire will leave. And he led them to Palm Springs. That's why I love to call it Palm Springs. God has a future and a hope for you. And it is good, good, good. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. And it's not the bitter place. That's just the test. God's prepared Canaan. And he's got a plot of land reserved with your name on it. The day will come when the pillar of fire will move. And I'll be able to take the handicap sticker out of my car. And Katie will dance. How long do we have to stay at Mara? Ooh, that's a good question. Here's my answer after several decades of living with this. How long do you have to stay at Mara? Longer than you think you will. Let me give you the fourth part of the creed. Let me give you the creed. You're a wonderful congregation tonight. You're wonderful. I believe God led me here. I believe God will provide for me here. One day, I believe God will lead me away from here. And here's the last one. I believe God wants to use this experience at the bitter place to be a blessing and encouragement to others. That's a little long to say. Let me just say it again for you. But the fourth part of the creed, I believe God wants to use this bitter experience to become part of my testimony, to encourage a world and give hope to a world that is stuck in bitter places. Isn't it amazing that 3,400 years after they went to the bitter place, we're talking about it in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. What happened at the bitter place? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? Why? Why are we doing that? Because they started talking about, let us tell you about the bitter place and what the tree did at the bitter place. And how we're still following in faith and God still has a plan and a hope for us. God wants to use the bitter place. I don't know for what you it may be. Maybe, maybe you've had a divorce. Maybe you've had a disease. Maybe you've had a rebellious teenager. Maybe you've had a bitter experience in a work relationship or with a relationship in the church. Maybe you've experienced a church split bitter experience. Oh my goodness. And I don't know what you're in now. At Loudonville Church where I pastored, 
I never gave up baptism class. I always, we had a staff of pastors, but I was a senior pastor, but I said, I'm going to do the baptism class. I just loved the baptism class. Because in the baptism class, we worked primarily, worked on, do we understand salvation? Because Pastor Stan was going to dunk them in the water, and that's how we did it at Loudonville. And baptism Sunday was the best Sunday of the year. We did it twice a year. And we'd make everybody who got wet tell them why they were getting wet, you know, and give their testimony. And I said, you got to do it in two and a half minutes. Paul gave the Damascus Road testimony in two and a half minutes. If he can do it, you can do it. And so I'd work with them on their testimony. I just, it was just, it's what Christianity is all about, baptism class. And invariably, so when we'd start working on our testimony, I said, there's three parts to a testimony. This what, one, two, three. Tell them what you were. Tell them how you met Jesus. And tell them how life is different. One, two, three. You can do that. And everybody said, okay. So they'd start working on their testimony. Invariably, I'd get a phone call sometime in the week, and they'd, I'd hear perhaps a 30-year-old woman say something like this, Pastor Stan, I've been working on my testimony. Should I mention the abortion? Had a young lawyer, a man, who said, Pastor Stan, I've been working on my testimony, and I knew these people's stories. Should I mention from the pulpit the years I spent in the gay lifestyle in New York City? Should I mention that in public? That's a very interesting pastoral question. And I would usually say something like this. You know, it is a public setting, and certainly you don't want to be humiliated by something you say in your testimony. And you say what you feel you can say in honesty about your past, and particularly the bitter places. But then I would say something like this. I remember saying it to the woman who had had an abortion. I said, but if you can... If you could use the word abortion in your testimony, it would speak hope to people in the pew who don't believe there's grace available for things like that. Let them know how God met you in your bitter place and redeemed you. I can't tell you how deeply I believe this. I got to tell you a very personal story, and I'm, then we're going to close the service. Wow. In 2007, I'd been invited to preach in Thailand to the Christian Medical and Dental Association. This is a pretty, one of the, I've been more nervous doing this than anything I think I've done in my life. There was probably 350 medical missionaries serving in Vietnam, China, Laos, Myanmar. For, they were there for 10 days to get continuing education medical credit, and they would invite, every year they had it, someone to be the Bible teacher. Well, that was me. Well, the years before I had been there, they had had John Stott there, Philip Yancey there, Oz Guinness there, Dennis Kenlaw there, and then this year it was Stan Key. It's like, Stan Key, <laughs> how does that fit in that equation? I was being introduced on the platform that first, it was 10 days. 
I was so nervous. These people all had doctorates. They all served in China. And I, who am I? And I was feeling very small and insignificant. And I was asking the Lord, Lord, what qualifies me to be here? And I, I remember thinking, this, this is true. I don't have a doctorate. Then I said, but I do have a master's. <laughs> the Lord just sort of rolled his eyes. And I said, well, I haven't served in Vietnam, but I have served in Paris, France. <laughs> you know, I was, this spiritual one-upmanship, just trying to... And then I said, Lord, well, what qualifies me? And this has happened very few times in my life, but the Lord told me what qualified me. And I stood up when it was my turn, and I said something like this. I said... Ladies and gentlemen, it's such an honor to be here these 10 days. And Katie was with me. It was before the stroke. And I said, Katie and I, I have to confess, we're really nervous about speaking to such an amazing group of Christian servants. Like, it's like a room full of Mother Teresa's, you know. It's just like incredible people. And I said, I'm sitting here struggling, wondering what qualifies someone like me to speak to people like you. And I said, I think maybe I know. And then I said this, I am a failed missionary. I said, Katie and I went to France thinking we were the best thing that had happened to Europe since D-Day. <laughs> and our missionary team fought like cats and dogs. We never got along. People started going home from the field, never coming back. The one little church we planted split. Our visas were denied. And the mission decided to close the field after 10 years. Katie and I got on an airplane and flew back home and looked at each other and said, what was that all about? I said, maybe that qualifies us. Do you hear what I was doing? I was talking about the bitter place. All week that week, these doctors and surgeons and pediatricians came up to me and said, man, we're going to listen to you. You're our kind of preacher. Because <laughs> we're failed missionaries too. And I began to realize this is the great secret in the church. The church is full of losers. <laughs> and we laugh because we know it's true. Paul said, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise by worldly standards. Not many were wealthy. God chose what is nothing in the eyes of the world to shame the big shots. That's what the Mara is all about. I believe God led me here. Suffering is not a problem to solve. Stop trying to figure out why. Good luck with that. Just embrace the cross. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No. There's a cross for everyone. There's a cross for me. Lord Jesus, thank you tonight for the bitter place. We gag on those words to say them, 
and yet we know how true they are. And thank you for losers. Thank you that you love those who are spiritually bankrupt, those who don't have it all together, those whose history is just a train wreck. Lord, that's who the church has always been. Thank you for the liberating truth that comes to us at the bitter place. In Jesus' name and for the sake of the kingdom, amen.